The coronavirus pandemic has laid bare stark inequalities in American education, but those inequalities long predate COVID-19. And some of the most glaring examples stem from the attendance zones school districts use to assign students to schools. The boundaries of these zones receive far less attention from school reformers than do the borders of school districts. But are they just as important in shaping access to educational opportunity? And could they be vulnerable to legal challenge? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Tim DeRoach. Tim's the author of the new book, A Fine Line, How Most American Kids Are Kept Out of the Best Public Schools, just out from Red Tail Press. You can find an article drawn from that book on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Tim, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marty. So we're having this conversation on Tuesday, June 9th, the day of the burial of George Floyd, whose killing at the hands of Minneapolis police has heightened concern about sources of systemic racism in American society. And it seems to me that your book has a lot to say about that topic. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to discuss it at this moment. What's the book's origin story? Why do you decide to write it? Well, so a few years ago, uh, I was hired to help uh, Gloria Romero. Gloria is the former majority leader of the California Senate. Uh, I she was coming out of the Senate and was the head of the, uh, the local chapter of Democrats for Education Reform. And she was in the midst of uh, going out and giving these very powerful speeches about the, how your zip code should not determine your educational destiny. And so we were having coffee. Uh, I still remember it well. We were having coffee in the El Sereno neighborhood of Los Angeles, and we were just batting around ideas, and, and her, her ideas really resonated with me. But we started wondering, what is the legal basis for a, a school? Uh, let, let's look at a school like Ivanhoe Elementary in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles, a very, very coveted school, a high-performing school. Um, everybody knows in the neighborhood that you want to, people really want to buy homes within the borders of that zone and you often pay a, a significant premium to do that. And so Gloria and I just started wondering, well, what's the legal basis for Ivanhoe keeping out families who live within walking distance of the school, who are constituents of the LA Unified School District? So they are paying for Ivanhoe via the bonds, um, and other taxes. And so what, what's the legal basis for keeping them out? It just didn't seem quite right. It didn't seem consistent with the rest of our constitutional protections. So that kernel of curiosity is what led us down the path. And when people make this statement that your zip code shouldn't determine your educational opportunity, shouldn't determine your destiny, they often focus immediately on the question of which school district you live in but your focus in the book is on attendance zones rather than school districts. How are they different and why do those differences matter? Well, the boundaries of school districts are jurisdictional, right? They are, are uh, created through the political process. There's political representation at the district level. Attendance zone boundaries are drawn by bureaucrats. They're really uh, uh, administrative service areas. And, you know, if you look at this, this issue through the lens of funding, then you would definitely think, okay, school district boundaries are more important because 
the vast majority of, of K-12 public education is funded by local property taxes. So you see big discrepancies across district lines. On the other hand, if you look at it as I do through the lens of access and through the lens of the impact on the social compact, then you can make an argument that the attendance zones are actually much more important because what you see with these attendance zones is that in our urban centers, you can have two schools, one that is thriving, a high performing coveted school right next to a school that is failing or, or struggling for, for decades maybe. And what determines whether you get into the high performing school is whether you live on one side of the line or the other. And the houses and the apartments on that side of the line cost much more. So many, many American families in the middle class and lower income classes can see that there are high performing schools within often within walking distance of their homes and they're not allowed to enroll in those schools and I think we've underestimated the damage that that does to the social compact and the damage that it does to the idea of public education as the great equalizer as this as this key to the American dream for all American families if, if you know there's a good school within walking distance but somehow you're not allowed to enroll there are rules that prevent you from getting an equal opportunity to enroll at that school I think I think that uh, that damages the social compact and of course what largely determines whether a family is able to live on the right side of that attendance zone line is their access to wealth but because of the correlation between wealth and race in this country. We mean that uh, we know that this creates large disparities in access to quality schools along lines of race as well. I know you were very attentive to that in uh, drafting the book and releasing it. You chose to release it on the 66th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision that barred legal segregation. Um, it, was that important in, in your thinking about the issue? It is because I think access to me is the long forgotten issue of, of, of K-12 public education. You know, you've kind of got the two sides of the ed reform wars. Uh, some folks focus on more protections for teachers, more funding, and then you've got the ed reformers who focus on, you know, let's get more charter schools or let's, let's open up private school choice. But the fact is, is that both of those groups kind of ignore this issue of, the best public schools are not open to everyone. And the promise of Brown v. Board of Education that uh, a public education must be available to all on equal terms, it's simply not true. It still isn't true 66 years after Brown. Now, you argue against attendance zones on policy grounds, but you also write that they may be vulnerable to legal challenge. And that's the focus of the Education Next article that was drawn from the book. And I think that's important because there are likely to be a lot of barriers to changing attendance zones through the political process. To cite just one barrier, the families who've paid a premium to live in a neighborhood assigned to schools uh, that have a stronger reputation, they can be expected to fight hard against a change that we'd expect to lower their property values. Mm -hmm. So. The legal case that you make against attendance zones, it starts with a fairly obscure federal law, the Equal Educational Opportunity Act of 1974. Where did that law come from and what does it say? 
So this is a long forgotten law, a civil rights law that was passed in the 70s. So Nixon um, was opposed to busing like many politicians of both parties at the time, including Joe Biden. And so he proposed a law that would put a moratorium on busing as a solution to, to segregation. And, but he wanted to pair that, he wanted to make it a compromise measure that would basically acknowledge that sometimes these zone lines are used to uh, segregate our schools. And so the law um, says that the appropriate way to determine access to public schools is by neighborhood. But uh, Congress, specifically the Democratic Congress, negotiated this compromise where the law says that a minority child cannot be assigned to a school that is not the nearest to their residence if it enhances segregation. And I think the thinking behind that was, you know, if, you, if we just say that neighborhood schools are the way to go, then districts can play all sorts of games with defining neighborhoods and drawing those lines. And you do indeed find that some of these zones are very, very weird, misshapen things. And you can only imagine the political shenanigans that may have gone into, you know, drawing where those boundaries finally fell. And so this law is a very powerful law because the zones are misshapen you know, you can look at a school like Mount Washington Elementary, and there's a great animation uh, with, with the piece in Education Next that sort of shows this visually. The attendance zone for Mount Washington Elementary is very misshapen. There are lots of pockets where families who live in those pockets, the closest school to them is Mount Washington Elementary, which is the high-performing coveted school, but families in those areas are assigned to other schools, other surrounding schools that have much, much lower uh, levels of performance. And Mount Washington is a majority white school. It's almost 60% white. And of the seven surrounding schools, not one has more than 9% white students. So when it assigns minority kids in those pockets, to the surrounding schools, it is enhancing segregation and it is violating this civil rights law. And, and really there's no case law around this law. Um, you know, I think we're very interested to uh, see how the courts would handle it because the, these districts seem to be in clear violation of the EEOA. Yeah, I was surprised in reading the article by how persuasive a case that you were able to make that a lot of attendance zones in the US are in violation of the plain meaning of the text of that law. Now, of course, that language, as you just acknowledged, is something that courts have not paid a lot of attention to. No one's paid a lot of attention to it for uh, several decades now. And that could determine whether courts would be willing to interpret and enforce it as written today. But you also argue then that attendance zones could be vulnerable under state constitutions and perhaps even under the federal constitution. So lay out that leap for us. The reason we have public education is really the state constitutions. That's where the promise of public education is articulated. And in several of the state constitutions, you have clauses that say that the public schools must be open to all students. And so the argument is in, in, in places where you have these elite schools that are coveted, that are high performing, and your, 
your eligibility to enroll in those schools is determined simply whether you live on one side of the, of the street or another. The argument is that school is not really equally open to all of the students within the district. Uh, and then there are a couple other states that have a promise of equal educational opportunity. So the argument is there, you're also violating this promise of equal educational opportunity. And then finally, you have the states, uh, a select group of states, I think about 13, where the courts have ruled that education is a fundamental right under the state constitution. And the key thing about that determination is that the courts are then required to apply strict scrutiny to any policies that restrict access to public education and strict scrutiny puts the burden uh, of proof on the government to prove that uh, that this is a necessary policy um, for the system to work and that's a very high bar that that most uh, policies will often fail and they say about strict scrutiny that it's strict in theory fatal in fact uh, exactly. and so I think you're right that uh, oftentimes the willingness of a court to adopt that uh, stance is what determines the outcome in a case. And that's where there would be some challenge for making this case under the federal constitution, given that the Supreme Court has not said that education is a fundamental right protected by the U.S. Constitution. But you even see hope at that level. So uh, help us understand that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the, the federal courts are not going to apply strict scrutiny to these uh, particular laws and policies that, that, that uh, deny education based on where you live within a district. They're not going to do that. Um, and that's because of, uh, the courts of the Supreme Court has ruled that education is not a fundamental right under the U.S. Constitution. It's not mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. And in addition, where you live doesn't create a suspect class. And that's usually the other way that you can trigger strict scrutiny. However, there is a, another category of scrutiny called intermediate scrutiny. And this is basically... Uh, a category of scrutiny that the courts have created when they feel very, very uncomfortable with certain types of government discrimination um, that pass the other type of test, this rational basis test, which is a very forgiving test and gives the benefit of the doubt to the government in terms of discrimination. And so intermediate scrutiny is something that's been triggered in a lot of different domains. It's been triggered in the educational domain. Two cases in particular that I look at are Plyler v. Doe, where the Supreme Court ruled that Texas could not uh, encourage districts to turn away the, the children of illegal immigrants. Um, and then secondly, U.S. v. Virginia, where uh, the, the Supreme Court said that Virginia could not operate a, um, uh, a military school just for men if there was not a comparable uh, institution for women of comparable quality. Yeah, and the, and the argument there is, I mean, if you look at uh, two schools, say, in, in Chicago, look at Lincoln Elementary and Menier Elementary, they, they both serve the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago those schools, you know, whether you get into Lincoln or Menier is determined by whether you live on one side of, this, of North Avenue or the other. And those schools, no one would judge them to be comparable. And the, the courts would, would not be able to do that. Now, in some sense, this seems to be an argument pitched at liberal justices who may be more concerned with inequality and more open to interpreting the Constitution broadly. But you actually find the closest thing to a judicial endorsement of the principle you advocate 
in an opinion written by Antonin Scalia. What did he say? He, he said that um, he, he disliked the turn that the court had taken with the desegregation lawsuits. And, the, you know, the courts have waded in and made these determinations about whether a district is unitary or segregated. And that's basically uh, determined by whether there's been overt segregation. And so what he argued was that by making it about overt segregation, um, the, the courts have, have created a situation in which over time they've, they've lost any ability to weigh in on issues of access because districts um, responding to the rulings in Brown and other, and other segregation lawsuits have eliminated any overt mention of segregation. But we know from looking at these urban districts that the schools are still strongly divided along racial lines. And so Scalia was saying, hey, over time, the courts are going to be powerless to weigh in on these divisions over time. And he argued that what it should really be is about access. So you, you shouldn't, the, the right isn't access to racially equal schools. It is equal racial access to schools. And so he envisioned a system in which parents were free to ignore their neighborhood school assignment and they could go to uh, the school of their choice within their district. And I, I think it's a powerful argument that, that given the, the history of the last 30 years, looks even more powerful now in retrospect and carries more weight than it did at the time he wrote it. Now, you've laid out quite a persuasive, quite a comprehensive case against attendance zones, but I should note that the editorial stance of Education Next, I think it's fair to say, has generally been skeptical of judicial interventions in education policy. And one of the reasons for that is a concern about the likelihood of unintended consequences. So mm -hmm. you strike down attendance zones, but what happens next? So one concern I might have, for example, is that all of a sudden school districts lose a lot of their middle-class families to surrounding school districts if they're in the inner city uh, or to private schools, uh, that there's a lot that could go wrong when you start unwinding these long-standing policies. So convince me that there's a viable end game here, uh, regardless of whether the change is made by the courts or through the democratic process, what would be a workable alternative to relying on attendance zones to manage enrollment within school districts? So those are valid concerns, Marty, and I understand that. But I, I also want to point out that what you just said, that exact argument could have been made in the wake of Brown. Oh, we shouldn't desegregate these schools because if we desegregate the schools, then people are going to leave the public schools or they're going to they're going to leave the inner city. And, and to some degree that happened. And to some degree, if you got rid of public school attendance zones, I think some folks would leave the public schools and some folks folks would flock to the suburbs. That There's no doubt that that would happen to some degree. I question whether it would happen to the degree that we think. Uh, one example I look at is the, the reforms to the California community college system in, in the 80s. The, the community college system had been losing 
uh, enrollment, much as the K-12 system has been losing enrollment in our inner cities in recent years. And the California legislature said, hey, let's get rid of these geographic restrictions. Let's open it up to choice. And so my argument would be, I think you might draw people back into the system, right? You, you might lose some people from the public education system, but you might draw fo other folks back in if there was more choice and more freedom and more access to these elite schools. Um, so that that that's one piece. The the other thing I want to say is that yeah, I'm not a big fan of prescriptive solutions, right? And so, in many ways, I think this access issue is a good one for the courts to weigh in on because they they don't have to prescribe a solution and they don't have to prescribe a remedy. I think the ideal ruling um, would just say, hey, uh, just like you can't use race. If you're a school district, you cannot use where the kid lives to determine whether or not they get into a given school. And what that does is it provides uh, a little bit of freedom for districts and states to experiment with different uh, options. So some districts might go to a centralized lottery, right, where they're allocating seats based on a lottery. That's not my favorite solution, but I think many districts would try it, and I think it's a step in the right direction. I like school site lotteries, so maybe districts would experiment with school site lotteries like we see with charter schools where the school itself has to run the lottery and it's a local, a locally controlled lottery. Other districts might try other systems like um, first come first serve, right? Um, there are elements, there, there are um, certain schools in the Los Angeles Unified School District where it's first come, first serve. Now, all, all of those systems are, are imperfect. All of them have the potential to be abused. But what I like about all of those options is that they are built on the principle of equal opportunity and equal access. Our system right now is, is not even built on that principle. My guest today has been Tim DeRoach, author of A Fine Line, How Most American Kids Are Kept Out of the Best Public Schools. Tim, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Marty. My, my pleasure. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.